Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be covering submarines and submarine disasters. So we'll be covering how they're rescued, what how it all works. We'll cover the rescue of the submarine, the Squalus, uh, and then we will discuss the very recent Titan disaster. I've almost forgotten how to do this. <laughs> it's been been a while, but hopefully uh, we'll get back into it. Yeah, it's nice to nice to be back chatting. Juniper is thrilled to be back. She is literally collapsed fully out on the floor right next to me because it's a bit warm today. But yeah, thanks for sticking around if you're, if you're having a listen to this. If you are listening, then please do follow me over on Instagram. It's at when it goes wrong pod. Uh, I really appreciate uh, any messages that you guys send me over there. Uh, yeah, love to love to chat to you guys. I think that I had been kind of thinking on and off about the pod and then the Titan happened. And thank you to the many people that messaged me about it saying that I should, um, I should do an episode on it. And I've, I think I previously said that I wouldn't do kind of very current things. But I think there's so much content out there about this already that actually, it can be covered in a reasonable amount of detail uh, quite early on, though I'm sure that I will end up having to do some kind of follow up when we when we really know the details uh, in a year or two. But yeah, it has been super fascinating. And I always had it on my list to do an episode on submarines and submarine rescue, especially with I had the book around about the squalus. So I, I knew I wanted to do something around that. So kind of just all came together. Uh, in order to do this chat today. And so if you haven't listened to some previous episodes, we've done kind of some episodes that are in a similar realm to what we're talking about. So uh, we did Deep Sea Scuba, which is nowhere near the depths that we're talking about today, but still uh, talking, uh, I talk a lot in that about pressure. Uh, so if you want to you want to hear the pressure chat, uh, then that's a good episode. Um, and we're not really going to cover too much about the actual Titanic, uh, but I did do a Titanic episode very early on. Uh, so if you do, uh, if this makes you uh, want to learn more about what how that actually happened, uh, then do go back and have a listen to that one as well. So we will get into sub submarines. You also can call a submarine a boat, not a ship. So <laughs> let's hope I can keep my nomenclature correct for the episode. So before I want to get into either, I just wanted to chat just a bit about subs uh, and and kind of how they even can get rescued. Because I think when you think about other other types of transportation disaster, you know, we know that like a boat has lifeboats and we know that planes have all the many escape rafts and stuff. Uh, but I was like, what, what do you actually do <laughs> when uh, with, with submarines and how, how on earth do you get rescued from them? So submarines, as you know, are subversible vessels uh, and they spend uh, the majority of their time underwater. And the key thing here is that when they uh, want to be underwater, then they need to add weight to themselves in order to sink and to stay under. Uh, and then when they surface, they need to get rid of that weight or they need to add buoyancy in order to kind of get back up. So, uh, you know, they need to maybe uh, add add air or they might take on water and then release water, that type of thing, in order to to go up and down. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes it was done with, yeah, weights, water or air. And so there's a few items which subs really need then in order to be successful uh, in their in their diving. So they need electronics, they need the power to kind of enable the weights, uh, enable the the different things, um, and and enable them to kind of pump things out, pump air in, pump water out, uh, and then also usually if they do have releasable weights to be able to release them. So making sure that they kind of keep their electronics on is really important, and they may have issues if that does does break down. We then also know that uh, the issue with uh, another thing the subs need to consider is pressure. So obviously the deeper you go, the more pressure you have on the on the thing that you're in, on yourself, on your sub. Uh, and it means that uh, it means that we the, the sub needs to be strong enough in order to manage that pressure. But it also means that if the sub is breached at the kind of deeper, higher pressure levels, uh, then you may die very quickly because it, the, the kind of pressure will literally kind of crush, crush you. Uh, and so that they're yeah, kind of important things to, to think about really, the electronics and the pressure. 
for most submarines, uh, they cruise around 300 to 450 meters under under the sea. Uh, so so far deep, but not you know not not as deep as we're going to talk about. Uh, and that compares to the Titan and the Titanic, which we'll talk about, which is 4,000 meters deep. So. Yeah, 450 to 4,000. Uh, and then the deepest area of the sea where a sub has gone is to a place called the Challenger Deep, which is a trench in the Mariana Trench. Uh, and that is 10,500 meters deep. So we, you know, we're talking about very, very different levels of depth. And the different levels of depth will require different different requirements from the sub and, and what they need. But yeah, most subs, you know, most standard subs, kind of 300 to 450 meters, cruising around. I thought when I was writing this, I was like, oh, it's so weird. Like now whenever I think I look out at like a nice calm sea, I might be like, mm, is there a sub somewhere under there? Uh, but yeah, but most subs are kind of, most of them are used in the military um, so, you know, for things like defense, protection for countries, uh, they are used to kind of detect sound. Uh, they include things like missiles, nuclear deterrence, that type of thing. So that is where the majority of subs are used for. Then, but there are, of course, are non-military subs. So some are used for manufacturing. We talked a bit about like deep sea oil wells when we did Deepwater Horizon. So we talked a little bit about that. You might have subs that go down that kind of look at the wells, that look at cables, uh, that that do all of that type of uh, work. Uh, and then we have subs for things like research, science, and then exploration and tourism. So yeah, loads of loads of different types of subs. What they what they're used for, what they need to think about big things that can go wrong in subs uh, so we've already talked about the electronics and the, the being really important the electronics work uh, fire is a really big one so when you look at kind of historical sub accidents a lot of them are fire related because obviously once you're once you're there you can't uh, it's very hard to put out and you're in a very kind of contained area there's been a lot of like explosions uh, on board and especially because like I said a lot of subs uh, often carry uh, some form of explosive or weapon uh, sometimes they will just explode well on the subs themselves which isn't isn't ideal then there are things like issues with oxygen making sure that the electronics are on so that you can get oxygen and and uh, you know air circulating then things like uh, beaching or hidden ground is actually really common uh, for subs. If they don't do their navigation correctly, then they may end up in an area that is a lot shallower than they expected. And then finally, obviously sinking. So they call it sinking of a sub uh, when it does indeed hit the bottom of the ocean and is then unable to resurface. So anyway, that was a whole lot of just random context about subs that I thought, I thought was interesting uh, before I jump into what I actually wanted to talk about, which was how uh, you get rescued from subs. But yeah, so the initial approaches for subs that sank uh, was was actually escape. So it was like, cool, your sub sank uh, because especially back in the day, we're talking about kind of sh shallower depths. It was like, great, we just need to then be able to have an escape hatch. You open the escape hatch uh, you wait for it to fill with water and then off you, off you pop, off you swim back to the surface and then get rescued. So this was in some cases successful, in some cases not. Obviously, it depends how deep it is as to whether someone can hold their breath uh, all the way up. Uh, and initially, uh, they started creating things like hoods and stuff that you could wear that would help just recycle a little bit of air so that you could, you could breathe uh, whilst you were swimming up. But, you know, there were problems with, with all of this as well as that often when they got to the surface, then they would have issues. So they would have issues with things like, uh, like the, um, you know, like pressures and stuff that we've already talked about. Uh, but things like they would get to the top and then like die of hypothermia or a heart attack or uh, no one would know where they were or be able to find them. So it was a bit pointless. So that tended to not be the kind of preferred, the preferred option uh, for sub rescues. So basically now how subs are rescued is uh, rescued by other subs. Uh, so it's progressed now to what they call deep rescue vehicles. Uh, so in some subs, they carry another little sub, which I just think is a great concept. Um, but uh, most commonly what they will do is they'll call uh, a submarine rescue 
agency of, of, of some kind, depending on the type of sub that they are. Uh, and then the rescue vehicle are deployed. Uh, the rescue vehicle comes with, with another sub. Uh, and what they do is they lock the hatch of the rescue sub onto the uh, abandoned sub, kind of pump out the, the water in between the two hatches, equalize the pressures and then open it up and just allow people to, um, to, to exit and, and jump into the other sub itself. Uh, but you know this it, it does work really well and it is a great system but it relies on the people in the sunk sub being able to notify people and for them to then be able to find them uh, because if they can't be found in time then they can't be can't be uh, given any help so we're going to jump into the, some of the topics so i'm going to talk about subs <laughs> so i was just looking at my notes and be like what on earth did i write so i think what i was trying to write was that there's two terms used in this world. There's the, the term submarine and what a submarine is, is a fully autonomous deep sea vehicle. And so what a submarine is, is that it can exist just, just as it is. So a, a, a submarine can just crack on, live its life as a sub, happy days. Uh, but a submersible, which is what we're going to talk about later with the Titan, uh, is different because a submersible always needs a surface support vessel. Uh, so a boat that it can kind of go down to and, and come up from. So yeah, so a submarine and a submersible, we're going to talk about both. I'll probably just call them subs all the way through. So it, you, you know, but I just wanted to make that uh, distinction if you are listening and care about that kind of thing. First of all, I'm going to talk about the Squalus for a little bit. Uh, not too long, I promise. I'll get onto the onto the Titan, which is probably what we're all we're all here for. But I want to talk about a little a little short one just before, uh, which was the Squalus, which was a new submarine, and they built it in 1937 in America. So this is uh, after the after the First World War, before the Second World War, uh, and it was like this brand new, state-of-the-art sub, had like all new materials, all the kind of mod cons. Uh, they were very, very excited about it uh, and ready to kind of launch it, launch it out into the world. And so it was in New Hampshire and it was doing a lot of practice dives at the time. So it wasn't fully certified yet as a sub. It had been built uh, and it was going through a load of kind of practice, practice missions, practice dives in order to fully certify it into service. And it had done well so far. Uh, so it had successfully done 18 dives. Uh, but in this case, they wanted to trial its emergency dive procedure, uh, which is where it would descend rapidly. So when they see something and they've got to they've dive as soon as they can. And in the case of the Squalus, it had um, a control room. And in the control room, it had a screen, which basically had like little lights. So... Obviously, this is 1937, so not a screen in the way we know it, but like a, a board with lots of physical lights on it. And those lights indicated when things were closed. So when a sub is not not underwater, when it's kind of cruising, cruising at the surface, uh, then it's able to open a load of vents and pipes and that type of thing in order to let fresh air in, in order to um, to like keep its buoyancy uh, and and would have lots of things open. And so the procedure for the emergency dive or any dive is that they would go, great, we want to we want to dive, close everything, right? We want to close totally close off the the sub so it's a fully contained contained vessel, so it's therefore protected. And ready to go down. So they had this this room with this uh, with these lights on, and it would have green lights if uh, it was good to good to dive, and red lights if it wasn't. Uh, and so they went through all the procedures of closing all the all the valves um, and uh, get get got that done. Which you know back in those days were lots of lots of turning big big wheels and cogs and everything like that. Uh, and as they turned them, each light on the board went from from red to green, and they were like, "Great, ready to go." So all the lights turned green, um, and the sub the sub headed underwater. And so it all seemed to kind of go well uh, for the first little while uh, until suddenly it all seemed to go wrong. So suddenly there were loads of shouts from up and down the sub that, that water was coming in uh, and water specifically flooded into the engine room, uh, the crew quarters and the aft torpedo room. And 
there was a lot of quick actions from the crew once water started flooding in. And the key thing with with a sub when water does does get in, and with the boat, we talked about this with with some of our uh, ship episodes uh, is that you then want to have watertight compartments so that you can try and control the water into a specific area of the ship uh, the boat in this case uh, and so then therefore making sure that you can keep some the rest of it you know kind of safe and, and ready so as soon as this started happening the the crew started sealing off areas as as fast as they could uh, and blocked water into specific areas. Uh, but tragically, this did mean that not everyone could make it out. So if you just happen to be in the wrong area of the ship, not the ship, the wrong area of the boat, uh, when this happened, uh, then, yeah, then you you were doomed. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of stories of, of men kind of running and, and just being let out and, you know, people standing by the door being like, I've got to shut this door because if I don't shut this door, we're all going to die. But I definitely know there's people that are going to be locked in if I if I do shut this. So, you know, a really tragic and awful situation that you are in uh, where you're kind of forced to make that decision. Uh, but they did successfully do that uh, and blocked off all of the areas and kept the rest of the sub safe. So a significant portion of the sub uh, safe, thankfully. Uh, but unfortunately, in doing this process, uh, 26 men uh, drowned pretty pretty immediately after the sub started diving. At this point then, because of the water that the sub had taken on, uh, it then was getting heavier and heavier. And so it just sunk all the way down uh, to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and it rested uh, 74 meters down at this point uh, on the ocean floor. And in the sub at the time, they had limited oxygen, limited power. They couldn't really do anything immediately uh, in order to to rescue themselves or, or, or know what to do. But they did try they knew that people knew that this dive was happening they knew that uh, at some point someone would come looking for them Uh, so they did what they could to try and find and attract attention to where they were so they sent up smoke flares that they kind of sent to the surface uh, that then went out Uh, and then they also uh, put out like a telephone marker buoy which um, allowed uh, linked the ship with a cable so if people made it to the buoy then they were able to communicate with the sub Thankfully, that worked. Uh, they did indeed notice very early on that the, the Squalus was missing. Uh, and the Squalus's sister ship, the Sculpin, whoever picked these names, very questionable, um, found found the missing sub uh, and, and was able to, to locate it. And then, luckily, in this case, uh, the shipyard where the Squalus had, had set off from, uh, there was a man called Charles Mumson. And Charles Momsen had basically dedicated his whole life to submarine rescue and was a real pioneer in, in this area in understanding how to, how to rescue people from subs and really trying to make the, the whole industry a lot safer, uh, which is very, very good, very exciting things that he did uh, and he did he, he invented loads of stuff so he invented something called the Momsen lung which was basically like the first version of a rebreather uh, which allowed someone to, to kind of breathe recycled air and therefore allowed them to get to the surface uh, more successfully uh, and it allowed them to slow down a bit when they were when they were swimming up so that it would uh, lead to you know help deal with the pressures and hopefully mean that they wouldn't get the bends he also did loads of research on like different levels of like like how what different levels of what to breathe when going underwater and diving so uh, you know the mixing of like oxygen with helium or oxygen with like different uh, elements rather than just kind of going down and breathing pure oxygen uh, which I thought was very interesting because we did talk about that in previous ones maybe yeah deep sea diving and cave diving I think were were two ones that we chatted about that but in this case, he invented something called the McCann Rescue Chamber. Back in 1937, this is what they used. They basically had, if you've ever seen a, seen a diving bell, which is basically just like a big compartment that people sit in to dive in. This was very similar. So it was a chamber that was lowered from the ship above. And it was supported by divers who also uh, helped to uh, get the, the rescue chamber down to where it would, needs to be. Uh, and they lowered this bell uh, on chamber onto the escape hatch of the submarine. Uh, they pumped out the water between the gap uh, and then opened it up. So very similar concept to what I was talking about with the uh, kind of vessels that even today that come and attach themselves and, and allow them to do this. But back in the day, this is what they started out with, with this rescue chamber. 
Uh, and this chamber was really successful. So it allowed uh, 33 submariners, submariners, submariners to be to be saved so they did four different trips uh, up and down with the bell uh, and managed to get out everyone everyone that was left uh, which was really really successful and this was uh, yeah really important because at the time there was very very little success rate in terms of saving people from submarines and i think i was reading that on like the same like around about the same time there was another submarine that sunk in n- near the uk uh, near liverpool and and it was totally tragic they didn't they didn't manage to save anyone um so this was the start of uh yeah actual successful submarine rescues which was very good and then what happened next the submarine actually was eventually raised from the ground because they were like we spent all this time and money building this amazing sub uh, that has broken but is still great uh, so they actually dove down to it and fixed a load of cables underneath it attached them to pontoons uh, and, and managed to raise it up. There was there was one failed attempt, but then eventually they did manage to raise it, uh, and they towed it to shore, fixed it all up, uh, and renamed it the USS Sailfish, which I prefer as a name. Uh, and it did it fought in World War Two before it was scrapped. So, bit of a happy ending for the sub, right? It got a got a whole new life. So yeah, so if we go forward in time, then. Uh, yeah, so back in those days, we, we've got subs going down to, you know, reasonable depths uh, and being being very key. Um, but there has always been a desire to really explore the deep, the deep oceans of the world. Uh, and this started back in the day, just started by basically like dropping big weights down as far as they could and just trying to like scoop up samples from the bottom or try and, and do take little cores from the bottom as well. But uh, as subs evolved in their design, they were able to go kind of deeper and deeper, further and further. Uh, and very much in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of a lot of push to just try and get as deep as possible uh, in a sub. And so it peaked when something called a bathyscape, bathyscape, uh, which was bathy meaning deep and scape meaning a bowl-shaped boat. I could not get to the bottom of why they called it a bathyscape and not a submarine. Uh, so if anyone doesn't know that, let me know. Um, but yes, they had a bathyscape called the Trieste. And the Trieste successfully went down uh, as a manned sub. So two people were in it and successfully, successfully managed to get to the bottom of the Challenger Deep. So the bottom of what that thing I mentioned earlier. So 10,500 meters deep it managed to get uh, as, part of the, as part of the Mariana Trench, which I thought was very impressive that in, yeah, in the 60s they managed to get, get that deep um, and yeah, do it successfully and i thought it was interesting that actually back in back in those days uh in order to get buoyancy in the tanks they used to fill them with gasoline which i thought uh does not sound like a safe idea of like oh we'll just pump everything full of gas and then hope nothing goes wrong it's a bit hindenburg-esque uh, one one i've also not done but yeah i think we've we've thankfully moved forward move forward from that design jump in then to the titan i'm gonna start off with a big disclaimer i should have said this at the beginning as well you know we're still we're we're early days right we're super early days when we're talking about this stuff i've done my best to kind of fact check to take things from like reputable sources that i think have done the research and got the right facts uh, but very very likely that this this isn't you know gonna be totally right like i said at the beginning we're I'll probably have to do a follow-up in like a year when we actually know what's happened. So some of what I'm going to say is just conjecture. Some of it is what is, is just my opinion. Uh, so yeah, just take everything I'm going to say with a grain of salt. And and yeah, do do your own research. I've got loads of things to talk about at the end in terms of, of, of references. So deep sea submersibles. And the world of deep sea submersibles is pretty small in terms of an industry. But back in 2009, this company called OceanGate was started uh, by a man called Stockton Rush. And his aim with OceanGate was to bring tourists to the deep sea. 
and it's kind of most well-known uh, now offering uh, that they had was that you could pay $250,000 to go down to see the Titanic. And so that was, you know, that was their whole proposition was that they wanted to get to get tourists down down into the into the deep. Uh, and in order to do this, you know, they had to to make it work in different ways because, you know, it couldn't be just called a tourist. It, basically, they wanted to allow adventurers to to explore where they wanted to go. And Ocean Gate originally took some deep, deep sea subs uh, which had been made elsewhere and then they refitted them. So at the beginning, they very much didn't uh, make their own subs. They just used ones that had been made previously because as you can expect, making any form of kind of deep sea submersible that can go to this kind of level, these kind of pressures, uh, you know, everything like that. It, it's a really big and really expensive undertaking. Um, it, yeah, it takes it takes a lot to to do this. And so, when a sub has been built in this way, they tend to kind of be resold and, and moved around and used for different purposes. Uh, and so, what is another key thing to note about these is that usually it's important to know that that subs in in the deep sea usually you will inspect them and you will validate them and you will say the kind of depth that the sub is validated to go to so you'll look at it you know do a load of testing get an inspector out who will look at it uh, and go right this is this is the depth that the sub is safe to to get to uh, and that's kind of very common in the industry but in 2015 uh, they did take uh, another sub and they did a full refit of it again uh, and they changed uh, changed quite a bit of it actually some of it maybe questionably uh, they changed the control systems so normally it would have two two separate uh, identical control systems to allow kind of safety and duplication uh, but it was reported that they wanted to make it very easy for someone to upskill to pilot the sub uh, so they combined it into one control system and they enable that to be controlled by a a playstation controller because that meant that it was very quick and easy for someone to get uh, upskilled in terms of being able to to pilot the sub been a lot of chat about whether that was a, a bad decision um, and especially around the fact that it was a wireless controller which uh, as anyone that has dealt with wireless uh, or bluetooth devices uh, it's never the most the most reliable this uh, sub that they had at the time it was a capsule shape so it wasn't a sphere uh, but it was a capsule shape and it was designed to go to kind of military cruising depth so we're talking to the kind of 400 to, to 1000 meter kind of kind of level uh, and at that point they named it the cyclops one and that was uh, the the sub that ocean gate used but they really wanted to go to to expand out. They wanted to be able to go deeper. They knew that that Cyclops one wouldn't be able to get to to where they wanted. Uh, but I think it's important to note Cyclops one because I think how that was designed and used then influenced the design of the next one. So they decided then to do to build a new submersible, and they but they, like I said, they kind of followed the design of the other. Uh, even though it was seen by some that the design of the other was either suboptimal or wasn't kind of designed for the depths that they were now wanted to take it to, uh, which yeah was not not the the ideal. So they made uh, this thing then called the uh, the Cyclops Two, uh, and they made it in a in a cylindrical shape similar to Cyclops One. Uh, rather than what they traditionally use, which is which is the shape of a sphere, and they usually use it the shape of a sphere because it allows equal pressure all the way round uh, the sub, rather than that allows then it to be to be a safer shape, uh, rather than a cylinder which which will have unequal pressure kind of through that, uh, and then that potentially means that some areas are under higher strain than others, which can lead to to things going wrong. Uh, but I mean, I think it is important to note that if you do look at others, like there are some others that are also in a cylinder shape, but maybe potentially not trying to go to, to the depths we're talking about. The other thing to note was that 
the cylinder would allow more people to fit in it. Uh, spheres generally are, are very small because it's very expensive to make a big sphere, uh, whereas it was a bit cheaper to make a cylinder, so that made more sense. There was also then the debate of the materials that would be used. So in the case of the Cyclops 2, it was made of use, made used of carbon fibre, and we'll talk about carbon fibre again, but basically... Carbon fiber is a very strong material, uh, but usually you would build subs out of titanium because titanium is the strongest metal, super strong, ready to go. Carbon fiber is lighter, but not potentially not as strong in the kind of situations that we're talking about compared to titanium. So they were both kind of new and, and different types of types of of innovations in the sub industry. And I think the thing here is that it, you know, these things can change and things can be developed, right, in these types of industries. But in order to do that, they would need a lot of testing, right? You know, it might be that, you know, I saw some stuff about how that carbon fiber has been used in subs, but it's still undergoing like extensive amounts of testing to see exactly how safe it was uh, before then actually kind of taking it out to to make sure it's viable and it's not really been kind of shown as viable just yet. Uh, and so I think it's relatively clear that the amount, the level of testing for these kind of newer innovations that were being introduced as part of these subs wasn't done to the level that we would hope. And then... So yeah, so then it had this carbon fiber cylinder. The cylinder was then attached. It had two titanium O-rings on each end. Uh, and then it did on one end have a porthole. And that was then made of a, a type of kind of toughened plexiglass, which allowed you to, to look out of it. Um, I've got a few quotes in here. They are all from a New Yorker article, which I'll talk about uh, again at the end. Uh, but there was a quote that I just wanted to read out, which says... Rush eventually decided that he would not attempt to have the Titanic-bound vehicle classed by a marine certification agency such as DNV. He had no interest in welcoming into the project an external evaluator who would, as he saw it, need to be first educated before being qualified to validate any innovations. And I thought that that was quite a good summary of how it didn't get validated or checked to the level that a lot of other subs have done. They basically kind of figured they wanted to do these different types of types of innovations and builds, went ahead and did them, but did not then get it tested uh, or validated by external agencies. So we can, we then know because there was a court case that surrounded this because of of unfair dismissal but this was a few years before then when the cyclops 2 was kind of they they deemed it ready for testing there was a man in the agency at in the in the company at the time uh who was director of marine operations a guy called david lockridge uh, and he was in post and he had to sign off on the safety of the sub before it could then start being tested but actually, he was very, very worried about this. He didn't see the kind of innovations being uh, with the with the cylinder and the carbon fiber being a good thing. He was very worried about it. He was especially worried about the carbon fiber. He really wanted like the full hull being really deeply tested before it would be used. And he wrote this in this really long report. Uh, and then he sent this report to to kind of the main people that worked at um, Ocean Gate, including including Rush. And I think it's safe to say that that didn't go well. <laughs> uh, and he uh, also sent it to others in the industry because uh, the kind of, like I said, the deep sea sub world is pretty small. So he sent it to others in the industry who tried to kind of reason with Ocean Gate about the safety of the sub. Uh, and this led to an email exchange. And this email exchange has been very published everywhere in the in the press. Uh, and I just wanted to read out some highlights from that. So March 1st, 2018, McCallum, who was uh, another uh, man in the in the deep sea industry and very uh, kind of well known. Uh, McCallum tried to reason with Rush directly. You are wanting to use a prototype unclassed technology in a very hostile place, he emailed. As much as I appreciate entrepreneurship and innovation, you are potentially putting an entire industry at risk. 
Rush replied four days later, saying that he had grown tired of industry players who try and use a safety argument to stop innovation and new entrants from entering their small existing market. He understood that his approach flies in the face of the submersible orthodoxy, but that is the nature of innovation, he wrote. We have heard the baseless cries of you are going to kill someone way too often. I take this as a serious personal insult. And, you know, it's one of these things where now you read these things, right? And and, and it's actually happened. So it's, it's, yeah, a very damning set of emails, I think. So at that point, uh, Lockridge was then fired uh, and he kind of raised some court issues uh, via kind of like whistleblowing because he basically said he was whistleblowing and then fired because of it. Uh, and this led to the court battles and this is why a lot of this information is in the public domain and we do have this kind of details around around what happened next. But yeah, so then since then, Oceangate then said that they addressed kind of concerns around the carbon fiber. They said that they had created and patented a new thing called an acoustic listening system, uh, which would listen to the hull. And uh, if it could hear that there were any issues with the fibers, because that's what carbon fiber is. Uh, so if if it could start to hear that the fibers were breaking, uh, then they get like an early alert uh, to that and then it would allow the sub to surface before the the um hull could could fully break and what i would note is that when we kind of talk then about um all of the this like emails exchange and these people being worried about it there seems to have been debates as to whether it was actually reported to regulators and whether regulators looked into it or whether uh it never really got reported uh, I think the thing here is that a lot of the a lot of this was kind of done like between or outside of different jurisdictions, which meant that it didn't it didn't really kind of fall under someone. Because yeah, that was my question when I was doing this. I was like, surely, surely a regulator or someone would have cared or or done something. But yeah, that definitely just doesn't seem to have have happened. So yeah, so then at this point, uh, the Cyclops two was renamed to Titan. Uh, in order to kind of fit in with the whole Titanic thing. Uh, and it went to full sea trials. But it's important then to note that it didn't actually then dive uh, or, or kind of take any any other uh, people on the sub for three years after that. They then went into this kind of three year of diving and testing period. Uh, they built a lot of new hulls, it was said, uh, and more trials were done. Uh, but a lot over this kind of time period just isn't in the public record as to what happened after that. There were some some claims, you know, where they've read that where people have seen like on the on the website, they said like, oh, we we worked with Boeing or we worked with NASA or we worked with whoever in order to validate the sub. But then a lot of those companies have now come out and said that they had nothing to do with it. So we kind of have a bit of a void really here between kind of 2018 uh, and then when the sub started taking uh, taking paying passengers uh, in 2021. Uh, I do think it's important to note that the sub, you know, did have some uh, quite a few methods to to resurface. So as long as it stayed intact, it did have quite a few, you know, fail safes uh, in order to 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 get back up. Uh, so it had four different methods for for weights to be released and for it to to regain buoyancy. Uh, and it had a a form of weight that is actually quite popular in other subs as well, where basically it has weights that um, are attached with like a type of metal that will corrode within 24 hours so if for example the sub lost power and just sunk just to the bottom of the ocean if it then sat there for 24 hours obviously would be very unenjoyable for 24 hours but at that point uh the the weights would corrode the 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 metal holding the weights would corrode uh, and it would allow them to to head back up all right just rearranged myself because i've been talking for ages i haven't got to the sub going down yet but um ocean gate then started fully diving the titan with uh what they called mission specialists uh from 2021 uh so in order to not be kind of regulated as like a tourist thing they weren't the people that paid to come on the sub weren't tourists that were paying they were known as mission specialists so they were people that paid to join the sub but they were all going down for a purpose for a reason uh, in order to you know conduct experiments or, or whatever uh there's you know very different <laughs> views out there as to whether that was 
particularly ethical uh, as, you know, what what that meant, uh, calling tourists mission specialists, but we'll go with it. So yeah, so in 2021, it invited mission specialists to join. And for those who did choose to come along, it was made very clear to them uh, that the sub was very much on the edge of science. Uh, you know, it wasn't fully uh, wasn't fully safe. Everyone that came on board had to sign a load of waivers, acknowledge that they didn't know it was safe, acknowledge that, you know, if, if they died, that is what it is. Uh, and it was all in the meaning of exploration and adventure and, and where they wanted to go. It also meant that when they joined as mission specialists, they were they were very much part of the operation. So they weren't, you know, they weren't treated as as tourists. Uh, they were very much kind of part of the crew. So when they would, they would basically fly, and then they would get on a big ship, and then the ship would uh, take them out to where the Titanic site was, uh, with the uh, Titan on board or being towed behind it. Uh, but then on the on that ship. Uh, the mission specialist would be expected to go to all the crew meetings. They'd help out with like odd jobs on the ship. They do do things that needed doing, um, and and yeah, be really involved. And people had that you know they they'd successfully done quite a number of dives. And we have uh, again the reason we have quite a lot of data is that a lot of people that had been on previous uh, dives with with uh, the Titan had done a lot of coverage in the media and they did invite quite a few media people on board so we have a lot of coverage as to how it worked and and what really happens Uh, and i have to say that in the coverage of what you can watch of of where previous mission specialists have gone you know it does show that they did have like quite a big safety culture they had a lot of checklist methods you know they worked in a way that did uh you know that is very common in the industry they weren't uh you know kind of very obviously working in a very different way the Titan then would actually many times not actually even dive. So usually they would go out for, you know, like an eight, nine day period uh, and hope to dive once in that time. Uh, but regularly it wouldn't go. Uh, so it had what was called a three strike rule. So if three things were off, no matter how small those things were, uh, then the the Titan wouldn't dive uh, and it wouldn't go and it would be postponed until those things would be fixed. Uh, it also wouldn't go if the weather wasn't great. Uh, and that obviously uh, is very common because the Titanic, uh, if you do see where it is, it is very much in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic Ocean, in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so yeah, very common for the weather to be really bad. And I did then Google like, why, why did it matter about the weather? Because they're then obviously underwater where... Surely the weather doesn't matter as much, but it's all about it's all about being able to launch it because in order to launch it, they would kind of lower it down on a platform. They'd have to kind of move the Titan off the platform into the water. People would then have to be able to to get on it, like make it to the platform, get on it, and then there'd be divers in the water that would kind of like set it up and 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 set it going. So if the weather was bad, then just none of that was was able to take place. Uh, and then obviously, if anything did go wrong, and they did need to do any any action, uh, bad weather really wouldn't help them. So yeah, so then five people would be able to go on each dive. Uh, this would be three mission specialists, or three people that paid to come or got free slots. Uh, one Titanic specialist or guide, uh, and then one submarine pilot uh, engineer. Uh, and I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've probably seen the kind of footage of what it looked like inside. It was basically just a cylinder uh, with it had no chairs or seats in it. They just kind of sat on the ground uh, within this cylinder. They could see through the little porthole at the front uh, to, to see where they were going. Uh, and there was kind of a small little toilet behind a curtain if they happened to need it. But uh, the hope was that they just held it, <laughs> which fair enough. It would get really cold in the sub as it would get deeper and deeper. So before uh, the people would get on to to dive, uh, you know, they were given kind of special clothes to wear, hats and gloves and, and socks and all that kind of thing. And yeah, then were then were prepared and ready to go. They were they played music in the in the sub. They were asked to yeah give them some music to to listen to as they as they dove down. Um, but yeah, when they were ready to go, uh, the five would go inside. 
the people, the support crew would then literally bolt, fully bolt the submarine fully shut, submersible fully shut, shut uh, from the outside with 17 big bolts. Uh, and then it was lowered in a platform before being released down. Um, and in a, you know, in a successful dive, then they would they would descend. Uh, they would, which obviously is quite a long process because it's really far underwater. Uh, so they'd go through all the different depths, uh, eventually getting to the point where it's it's just totally pitch black. Uh, the further further dark down you go, where the light can't can't penetrate. They would then find uh, the Titanic uh, and then spend a bit of time uh, with the the Titanic guide looking at the different areas. Uh, they were able to kind of film and look uh, through the the porthole uh, at the at the front uh, and there were kind of powerful lights attached to the to the sub along with cameras and that type of thing. So uh, they were able to see the different aspects. So yep, yeah, so they'd spend some time down the bottom uh, and then they would make their way back up. In terms of the the fateful trip that we're talking about, there were five people on board. Uh, so first of all, Stockton Rush, who was indeed the CEO of Ocean Gate, uh, and he was there to to pilot the sub. Uh, then a man called P.H. Nagalay, and he was a Titanic expert, and he was there as the Titanic guide. Uh, and this was actually his 38th trip to the Titanic. He had done a lot of these dives before. He knew the Titanic very well uh, and was able to navigate very well. And then we had the three mission specialists. So we had Hamish Harding, um, who was a British billionaire. Uh, he made his money through a hedge fund and then through an aviation kind of swapping business, um, but was very much an adventurer, had done a lot of, of deep sea diving and a lot of um, other kind of extreme adventurous uh, type activities. Then we had Shahzada Dawood, um, who was a British-Pakistani businessman, um, and then his son, Suleiman, who was 19 years old at the time. And they, yeah, I mean, it was a bit, it was, yeah, I think it's really sad. I mean, the whole thing is obviously very sad, but yeah, it, having a 19-year-old on there is, is very sad. And their, um, their mum and, and wife was, was on the ship uh, with them. Uh, before before they went off on the on the submersible dive, which I think would have just been a very very horrible experience. Um, and he, Silliman, the son, had taken like a Rubik's cube with him because he wanted to to do a Rubik's cube in like the deepest bit of the ocean. just before we kind of go into the reality of what happened uh i wanted to just start with a quote that i thought summed it up just at the beginning so mccallum who we talked about before who's a very leading person in the industry so the quote mccallum who was leading an expedition in papua new guinea at the time knew the outcome almost immediately the report that I got immediately after the event, long before they were overdue, was that the sub was approaching 3,500 metres, he told me, while the oxygen clock was still ticking. It dropped weights, meaning the team had aborted the dive. Then it lost comms and lost tracking and an implosion was heard. And I just wanted to start with that because we know now that that is exactly what happened. But that is something that happened whilst this whole, like, however many hours of was of searching was going on. Uh, this you know, came out afterwards, but I think is a, yeah, an important summary. So then let's go through what we, from a, from a external perspective, heard throughout this whole time. So in reality, what we heard was that it was Sunday, June the 18th at around 8am. The sub began its dive and around 90 minutes later, it loses communication. So it loses communication between the sub and the ship. Um, and it's important to note that like this could have been for a variety of reasons for for losing comms so it could be uh, that that the communication systems themselves had just broken down at some point then a sound of an implosion was heard and but this wasn't communicated out to the general public until much much later uh, but it's likely that uh, I mean I don't know this but you know the coast the coast guard the navy they're all listening to the listening to the ocean 
Uh, and so they they did uh, hear that sound of, the, of an implosion at some point uh, between the 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 sub leaving and before it was meant to meant to return. So throughout this day, you know, they didn't know whether maybe the comms had just gone, and so therefore it was still completing its dive uh, successfully, um, or what had happened. And so the sub was meant to return at around three p.m., but did not. Uh, so at that point, you know, it was very much confirmed that that something had gone wrong. Uh, and at around 6 p.m., the Coast Guard was informed that the sub had not returned. And at this point, this is where it hit all of our kind of news cycles, uh, because it was estimated at this point that there could uh, only be 96 hours worth of air on the sub itself. So this kind of set the timeline of, right, They've got, this was Sunday at this point, they had until Thursday to potentially find the sub uh, and rescue those on board. And I think this is why, you know, there was a lot of kind of coverage at the time as to like why, why was it getting so much coverage? I think it was getting so much coverage for many reasons. It is, I mean, I'm talking about it now, like it's interesting, right? Because it's just odd and weird and a, a whole as you'll hear when you listen to my one about deep sea diving, just this kind of stuff is just like weirdly fascinating. But I think then also because it was like this clock, right? This clock ticking of of this is how long we have uh, in order to find this sub, I think really kind of like gripped people because they wanted to know what was happening. It reminded me a lot of um, like the Thai cave, the, the Thai cave rescue where that was, you know, like very much a countdown in terms of what what was going on. So, yeah, so that so let's just at this point forget the implosion noise because we didn't know about the implosion noise at this time. So we just knew that that it gone missing and that there were lots of options for what might happen next. It could mean that they were on the bottom of the ocean uh, waiting for the weights to be released, like I mentioned, like the weights themselves were kind of corrode off and then uh, then resurface could be that it just had no comms it could be that it had made it to the surface but it had made it to the surface kind of elsewhere so like it had come up had no comms had no way of, of, of letting them know but was just like bobbing about on the surface somewhere uh, waiting to be rescued or it could be somewhere you know somewhere in the water column on its way back up but hadn't been able to gain as much buoyancy so it kind of like it could have been anywhere and that was the problem is that there was just like a huge number of different places that needed to be searched at this point in order to see whether they could find it or not and I think when I first started hearing about it I was like oh my god I mean if this is like literally at you know 4,500 meters deep there's no way that you even could rescue it but actually then when I read it more into it and was like oh actually you know there's a lot of different scenarios here that's just one of them that it's on the ocean floor in reality it could be you know not that far under the water it could just be bobbing around somewhere in this in the ocean just not being able to be found uh, and so actually you know spending a good amount of time like really looking for it was was really important. Uh, so at this point, a lot of aircrafts joined the search. Uh, some, which were were kind of looking looking over the surface. Some which had sonar that was able to penetrate down to see if they could kind of see it in the water column. Um, but this was obviously quite limited because it, you know the water was so deep it could only it could only look so far. Uh, and as we know from. This is like the episode where I reference every other episode. Uh, but we know from MH370, like, it's really hard to find anything in the ocean, right? Really hard. And especially something this small. I mean, they couldn't find a plane. Still can't find a plane. And so, yeah, so loads of vessels joined the search. Uh, and then that included eventually uh, some vessels which had like other deep sea remote operated submersibles as part of them. Uh, and then they were able to go down. The news then kind of progressed and eventually on the Tuesday uh, there was a load of news then which was saying that uh, there were like noises or like regular banging being heard. If you might you might remember that, it was kind of saying, oh, there was this like regular like banging every half an hour. Uh, and so that kind of then gave people a bit of hope. The You know, the headlines went mad for a while around that. Uh, and the search continued, but the origin of those sounds was then was was actually never been confirmed. Then on the Thursday, a remote operated vehicle, uh, which came from uh, the ship the Horizon Arctic, which weirdly was like the ship that the Titan used to use, and then they got a new ship anyway. Um, but that had made it there with a with a remote operated deep sea submersible, and that submersible had. Uh, 
found a field of debris uh, with parts of the Titan around a third of a mile from the Titanic ship. And then it was very clear once they had found that and once the Navy or whoever it was that heard the implosion released that they had heard an implosion. Uh, this then very much uh, aligned with the theory that the sub had imploded uh, in line with that report, like I said. Uh, likely near the bottom of the ocean, uh, kind of near, like I said, 3,400 meters. And it was very likely that if an implosion did happen, uh, then they were killed instantly. So as soon as as soon as uh, there was a breach in the hull or whatever caused the implosion, uh, then yeah, you wouldn't. You know, we're talking we're talking milliseconds, right? Uh, of of time when you would then be be killed. So since then, uh, they have raised uh, some significant bits of debris from from the ocean floor. You might have seen photos if you've been following this. Uh, you can see things like you can see the titanium rings. You can see the side of the hull where the window was, um, but it doesn't have the window in it. And it had been reported that human remains had been found, um, but there's been no further details as to kind of what specifically had been found as part of it. Uh, and so now that kind of gets us to where we are now. So now we, now we wait, right? There's going to be a lot of investigation into what has happened and what failed. Uh, we know that the, I can't remember, but someone that one of the main agencies that is uh, reporting it has basically said that they will report out in one to two years. So, <laughs> you know, we're probably not going to get any answers anytime soon. Uh, and so what has happened is that we've just got then a lot of speculation and I I don't know what which is right, uh, but there's a lot of speculation as to what could have happened i think the biggest thing that we see on the internet and in the coverage so far is speculation that it was the carbon fiber and the carbon fiber which failed and and led to a hull breach um and this was because i mean well many reasons that we know that carbon fiber maybe isn't the isn't the best material to use it had issues been raised previously it had been reported that every time you that the sub did go down there were quite a lot like a lot of like bangs and snaps and stuff that the that the material made uh throughout the kind of dive as it as it kind of failed and because it was going up and down and up and down and up and down you know it, it very much could have been a cumulative thing that eventually it just kind of got to the point where it just couldn't you could just couldn't do it anymore and therefore therefore broke and the kind of acoustic monitoring thing just didn't allow it to, you know, didn't allow them to get get back to the surface in time because of, of where and when it happened. Uh, so it potentially kind of just weakened. Uh, but I've also seen, what you know, ones that then criticize like the plexiglass and like how maybe that was smashed. And as you can see, when we saw the pictures of the debris, the plexiglass window's gone. So maybe that was what it was. Uh, ones that have said around like, no, it's the fact that they just used lots of different materials and it was the joins that were wrong. You know what I mean? Like I would just seen like there's lots of stuff out there that speculates into what could have happened and why. And I'm very interested and I've read lots about it, but I, I we're not going to know, right? This is just all people and their very well educated opinions um, as to as to what it could have been. Uh, and I think that, yeah, it's going to be uh interesting to kind of follow the news uh, and see see what happens next and see if we can yeah get to get to a bit of a resolution so i always like to finish these things with what we learned and i think we we do we did learn stuff especially like when we're talking about the squalus and and you know all these different ways of rescuing these loads of different um like different methods and how successful they have been and there has been like quite a few successful submarine rescues uh in the in the last however many decades which is really good to good to know and so that that's definitely been a learning that's come out of a lot of a lot of other things i think out of the titan i think that there's there's this balance, I think, of this kind of like balance of regulation and innovation, right? How how will regulation and innovation kind of keep keep up with each other? How do we not move to this kind of like toxic innovation culture where we just want to push and push 
at the sake of everything else. And I think it's an interesting topic. I think it came up in like Theranos, for example, where they were just kind of maybe, maybe not as much innovation because it just couldn't build it. But do you know what I mean? Like where the, the outcome is what we're trying to push kind of like screw everything else. Like we just need to like innovate and get there and like just, just go. Yeah. I think is, yeah. Interesting. And I think it's something that we need to learn and that we need to reflect on. And regulation will never keep up with innovation. And I think, again, that's coming up, n- not on a pod I've done, maybe I will, maybe one day when uh, it all goes wrong. Uh, but like with generative AI at the moment, you know, there's this kind of argue that, you know, regulation is never going to keep up with the speed that like technology is advancing. And and it reminds me of this here as well, where they wanted to kind of push with the regulation and it, and it couldn't couldn't keep up so there has got to be a balance you've got to be able to do both you've got to be able to push and explore and do new things but keep up that like safety and that safety culture in order to kind of progress it forward anyway that was probably a whole load of rambling and i might just cut it out but um (laughs) i think it's something that we learned and i think it's kind of interesting things i've been thinking about and i think we've learned a lot of kind of around safety and, and and what that means wow this is gonna be a long old ep uh but you know it's been it's been like three months since you've heard me talk so i'm sure that's fine um so yeah let's jump into references then uh so first of all there is a good documentary not on anything i've talked about today (laughs) but on deep sea subs um which is called james cameron's deep sea challenge um because we haven't talked about it much but james cameron big fan of the of the deep a uh, big fan of uh, yeah exploring uh, deep underwater stuff, uh, as we know from uh, the the scenes of of the ti- the real Titanic in the film Titanic, uh, and so he then did a documentary where they built a deep sea sub called the deep. Was it called the deep? Yeah, they built the. I don't know if it was called the deep sea challenge or not, but they built a deep sea sub and sent it off. Um, and that just kind of like covers like the sheer complexity of of trying to build a sub with all the regulation and stuff that they had to put in it and put behind it and just like how much it cost and how big the operation was like it was just yeah like immense so I think that that was just a really interesting documentary if you're just interested in this space Uh, and that was on Amazon Prime Um, and then the article that I quoted, which is a long read, which I really recommend reading and where I got a lot of my material from because I thought uh, out of the many, many things that I watched and read, uh, it was the one that kind of got it the most and I think is is kind of reputable, which is a New Yorker article, a New Yorker article that I will link in the references. Um, it is called The Titan Submersible Was an Accident Waiting to Happen. Uh, and so yeah it's quite it's hefty it's a hefty article um but really well worth a read um and then for the squalus uh there is a book called these terrible hours uh which uh covers it all in glorious detail uh pretty solid solid as a um as a non-fiction so worth it uh i found it interesting sometimes when it's like a little bit older like that i don't always love it as much but i thought it was good um does go into a lot of detail covers a lot more about kind of all the people that were involved which i which i very much skimmed over um but yes it's called the terrible hours the greatest submarine rescue in history by a man called peter mars um so yes have a look at that i think i got it on kindle very affordably And then finally, uh, I just want to call out, if you are interested in the Titan and Ocean Gate and like the theories and the debates and all of this stuff, uh, the best, by far the best thing to read about it has been just the subreddit. (laughs) Um, So there is a subreddit, which is not called the Titan, because I had to find it. Let me find it on my Reddit. Um, It's called uh, r slash Ocean Gate Titan. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty, yeah, I mean, it's got 40,000 people on it uh, and they very much, like they just share so much content around um, what happened, like people's theories, uh, like linking, you know, interesting articles that other people 
um, but other people had share a lot of content from like the previous ones but yeah it's um it, yeah if you if you want to if you want to go down the rabbit hole uh, then i very much recommend starting there and then yeah going from there but there we have it thank you very much for listening uh, much appreciated like i said at the top do follow me on instagram love to hear from you at when it goes wrong pod um if you've got any ideas for uh future episodes then drop them my way as well uh you can email me when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com uh subscribe rate review all that good stuff and yeah see you next time <laughs>